Uh, Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Our family on Tuesday drove out to um, Village Creek out in Iowa to pick up Annie. She had been uh, serving out there for about 10 days and and we were all really excited to go out and see her because we don't like uh, being apart. But unfortunately, as, as often happens, we got there a lot later than we expected due to a lot of different reasons. And uh, as we got there fairly late, I think we got there at 7.30 or 8.30. We were supposed to be there at 4. Um, so you know how well that went. And we were all really tired, just really kind of strung out from all that was going on. And and a little bit stressed because of the time frame, we had to get back to, to the Dells. And, and there were just some, some of those, uh, we'll call them transition dynamics. You know what I'm talking about? Transition dynamics where, where you kind of get back together as a family after you've been away for a while. And, and it's just, there's a little bit of a, of a chop there in the water of trying to get it back to normal. And in addition to all that, there was, there was the emotional stressors, kind of feeling the fact that Jacob's leaving this week and, and you know, things are going to change the family. And that's good. We're, we're proud of that. And we're happy for that. But, but we know things are going to be different. So, so while we were kind of happy to be a full family again and to get back together in the car, all those factors kind of combined real quickly. And within 10, 15 minutes of being in the van, we, we felt a lot of tension. There was some misunderstanding, some words that were said that were maybe a little impulsive and not well thought out, and some reactions to things and that, just, that just kind of put a, a damper on the reunion. Now, when we looked back at it after a couple hours, we, we chalked most of that up to spiritual warfare because I preached about spiritual warfare last week, and there were a lot of uh, awesome spiritual breakthroughs that took place last week that, that, of course, the enemy wanted to try to offset. But, but while there was spiritual warfare, there was also an element of, of us just not being completely careful about how we treated each other and how we talked to each other. And as I drove along the Mississippi trying to figure out, as, as the dad and the husband, how, how do I get us through this momentary unpleasantness, we should call it, how do, how, do we, how do we get beyond this? The Spirit of God put this verse that we're going to study this morning right into my heart and mind. Now, I, I memorized this verse as a kid, and that's a powerful thing to do, right? To memorize Scripture? To get the Word of God so, so deeply ingrained into your heart that as you're riding in silence toward lacrosse, which is a good name for an album. You're, you're riding in silence in the van. There's tension. There's kind of stress, and and, and you're you're kind of going along. That that because you've hidden the word in your heart, that the Lord then can minister to you, and He can tell you that there is a better way than what's going on at this exact moment. Now, the name of this message is the secret to great relationships, but but that's actually probably not a great title because there's no secret to what the Lord tells us here. This, this is not hidden, and that's one thing I, I love about Scripture. It's so simple and so practical and so reasonable that, that we kind of risk ignoring it because it's so obvious. It, it's so clear what God's telling us. And, and, and you know as well as I do, right, that the Word of God is absolutely logical. 
It's one thing I love about the word. It's just, it's straightforward. It's, it's not incomprehensible. We don't read it and go, I have no clue. I mean, no clue whatsoever what God's talking about. It's not, it's not mystical and, and kind of up here and we're down here. It, it is straightforward and it's pragmatic and it is wise. So if we obey the whole counsel of God, then we too will be living wisely. And we'll be able to talk to people, teach them, encourage them, strengthen them, and influence them that this word, this this truth, is right. One of the great truths that we can speak to people about and, and model is here in verse 32. Ephesians 4.32. As you read it, you're going to say, oh yeah, I memorized that as a kid. Good. I want you to have this verse deep in your heart this morning. Now, because we don't want to just pull a verse out of context, right? Because context is key. You you never just pull a verse out and say, well, that's what it is and that's what it means and I'm going to apply this to, to my life. No, you have to look at context. What's going on? Why is it being written? Who's it being written to? Who's writing it? What's the context say before? What's the context say after? So without getting too deep into it, I just want to give a little bit of background to verse 32. Now, obviously, because the book's called Ephesians, this is written to the church in Ephesus. Timothy, we know, became the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and we know if we stu- when we've studied First and Second Timothy that that people's words in Ephesus had a detrimental impact. Timothy was fighting a battle, and we know that because in Second Timothy he apparently has written to Paul and said, "I'm done. I'm out of here. I- I'm finished. Don't want to do this anymore. I love ministry, but I don't love this ministry. I don't love these people. I don't love this situation. I, I want a different assignment." Now we know that, right? So Ephesus had a problem. It was a, it was a fairly strong church, but the issues Timothy was trying to fight were related to the criticism of his ministry. A lot of accusations. He's too young. He's not seasoned enough. He's inexperienced. He's not Paul. He, he's just this guy and he can't really handle this. And there were people that were very strong personality wise and they were kind of attacking Timothy and trying to undermine him. Now, none of that was founded on truth. None of that was founded on any truth. But what they said kept kind of piling up until there was disunity in the church. And the body at this point, as Paul writes uh, 2 Timothy especially, but to Ephesus, the body wasn't maturing the way it should have. So there's a, there's a bit of decline, there's disunity, there's frustration, and, and that's very damaging to the witness of the church because Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan city with a great temple di- to Diana. There was a lot of religious influence that wasn't Christian. So, so they're still trying to fight to have a witness in the culture, and then when somebody comes to the church in Ephesus, when they walk in, it's not Jesus, we crown you with praise. It's backbiting, conversations off to the site, criticism of Timothy, and a mess. How many know that's not a good church? You don't want to walk into that. A church should be a place, as we say, a place of refreshing, a place where you come in and you say, oh, the Lord's so good. I've had a lousy week, but isn't God great? And isn't it awesome to be with the body of Christ and to lift our hands and to praise him and, and to worship and fellowship and sit down and study God's word and be completely full. That's what church is. That wasn't the church in Ephesus. But the biggest problem really wasn't this external issue, it was internal. 
people in the body, criticizing other believers and carrying a mean spirit, saying things about each other that damage reputations instead of edifying other people. So look at what Paul says. We're going to concentrate solely really on verse 32 this morning, but start in verse 25 and let's get a feel for what he's saying. Therefore, because he's just talked about Jesus and about truth, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what's good, so that he'll have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word, verse 29, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Read verse 32 out loud with me. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. Now, go back to verse 25 for a minute, because the Holy Spirit, through Paul, directly addresses how they were talking. And throughout these next verses, he gives them practical actions for them and for us, because all Scripture is given to, give, to be profitable for our correction and training righteousness. So, so these words are to us. So he gives practical actions about how to mitigate against the problem. In verse 25, he says, discard any lying. Get rid of it. Put it off. Be intentional about being truthful. Speak truth. Don't, don't compromise truth. Speak truth. Don't lie. Then he says in verses 26 and 27, don't let your anger, because you will have some, don't let your anger lead you into sin. Anger is usually expressed verbally, right? We usually pop off at the mouth, you say, or, or say something we're going to regret later. So he says, don't let your anger cause you to sin, and, and at the end of the day, don't retain it in your heart. Now that's Easily said, but not always easily done, right? Some nights you go to bed and you're angry with your kids, or they're angry with you, or you're angry with your spouse, or they're angry with you, and you've got to get that reconciled. You can't, you know, we've all had those nights where you're just like turned away from each other and, you know, seething and, and it's quiet in the room, and it's just, it's awful, awful. So he says, don't let the sun set on your anger, because that can be inflammatory. It can, it can create resentment to stockpile up and, and kind, of, kind of create a culture of division that once it is created, is hard to break. So he says, deal with that. And he says, very importantly, in verse 27, don't allow the devil to have an opportunity to infiltrate and destroy what's going on. Then in verse 29, he says, don't allow a single impure or destructive word. The word destructive there is, is the word rotten. Don't allow what's rotting to come out of your mouth. Instead, say what is edifying, what shows grace to the other person. Now, why should we do this? Well, that's good advice, and we all know you say nice things. But, but he's got a very specific reason here in verse 30 why that's so important that not one single word comes out of our mouth that is not edifying and pure. Look at the reason in verse 30. He says, any impure word grieves the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit has sealed our salvation. He has secured our redemption through Christ. But the word here for grieve means to cause sorrow and offend. So not only is God listening to every word that comes out of my mouth, not only is he cataloging every word that comes out of my mouth, but what I say affects him. And you say, well, he's God. He's not affected by you. Well, look at verse 30 because apparently it does. So if I speak cruelly, or if I swear, or if I say something that's impure, crass, coarse, if it's ungodly, if it gives the devil an opportunity to kind of sweep in, I'm causing sorrow and offending the Holy Spirit of God. I'm giving an affront to His holiness and the grace that He has poured out on my life, and I'm essentially making God sad and upset. Now, one parallel to this would be that when God told Noah to build the ark, the reason he did that is because it says in the text, God was sorry that he had made man. Man had gotten so far down the path of rebellion and selfishness that that God felt sad about it. And then there was the time where Jesus went into the temple and he saw that, that, it was, that it had been prostituted financially, that people were making money to sell sacrifices to people that hadn't brought any thoughtlessly. And he turns over the tables and says, my house is going to be a house of prayer because, because people were defiling it. He was sad in that moment. We see the anger, but there's sadness there. Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives on the donkey on, the, on, on Palm Sunday. He's sad. He's crying, right? He's weeping over the city because they just don't get it. Peter in the courtyard a couple days later, uh, when, when he denies Jesus, it says that Jesus looked at him. And I don't think that was a look of anger like, how dare you? I think that was a look of sadness like, I can't believe you just did that. I warned you you were going to do it. And you've offended me. The words that we say, look back at verse 30. The words that we say, unwholesome words proceeding from our mouth that are not good for edification, that don't give grace, they grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And We don't want to insult the Lord or offend Him or disrespect His righteousness because He's the one who saved us from sin. He's the one who freed us from bondage. So it's really, and I say this carefully, it's, it's really the height of arrogance and ingratitude when we do what verse 29 says. Now that leads us to the application in verses 31 and 32. And one of the applications is, is more negative and one of the applications is more positive. First, let's look real quickly at the negative in verse 31. He says, put away, put away, what's the next word? All, say it with me. All, put away, say it with me again, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, which is just noise, and slander, along with what drives those actions, which is malice. Malice, very interesting word in the Greek language. It means wickedness that's not ashamed. Wickedness that's not ashamed. Now, notice that there's no space for that. There's no latitude, because I made you say the word three times. What was the word? Tell me again. All. So there's no space. There's no no room there for any of that in the disciple's life. The command is to be completely 
rid of those actions, to put them off, to intentionally get rid of them, to submit them to the Holy Spirit. Now, that the only way that's going to happen is if I am submitted to the Spirit. Because I don't know about you, but I can't get rid of those things on my own. I do have bitterness, and I do have anger, and I do have resentment. And there are times where, where I'm just angry, where I'm just ticked off. I'll give you an example later that makes me look really bad. I'm not going to get rid of that on my own. There's no way. It's just, it's, it's in my physical DNA. But the Holy Spirit can remove those. And when we are intentional about emptying ourselves of those things, when something's empty, then something else can fill it. And what God wants to fill that with is with his spirit. So that's the negative. Now look at the positive, verse 32. He says, be kind, be tenderhearted, and forgive one another. It's so simple. Listen now. It's so simple that it can be a challenge for us to do consistently because somehow we overlook it. We've been fully equipped. God's not, God's not held anything back. We've been fully equipped to do what verse 32 says. So let's study how we do it, okay? Start with each phrase. We're just going to go through each phrase for a couple minutes. First phrase, if you're taking notes, just write, be kind. The Lord tells us to be kind, and that seems obvious and, and maybe even almost trite until we realize just how countercultural being genuinely kind is. Now, our society will tell you, no, it's Christians that are ones that are mean. It's Christians that are ones that are intolerant. It's Christians that are ones that are, that are closed-minded. But, but listen, this, this idea that the world has, has unquestioned kindness and, and tolerance because uh, just anything goes and, 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 and as long as you're happy, do whatever you want. Listen, that seems right until you start to say what you believe and then the intolerance goes off the charts. If it's really true in our culture that anything goes, you can believe anything you want, you can be anybody you want, you can do whatever you want, we're not going to judge you, then Christians should be allowed to have an open forum and say whatever we believe and, and everybody should say, that's wonderful, good for you. You want to believe that? That's fantastic. But what happens when a Christian opens their mouth? When somebody says something about the Bible, oh, you Christians, you're so intolerant. You don't have a right. In fact, we're going to legislate against you because you have no right. Uh, what happened to tolerance? What happened to understand? What about I get to be who I want to be? See, it only goes one way. Now, this, this has to be seen by the believer because this idea that there's unquestioned and, 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 and uh, tolerance and, and kindness it is a lie. It's not really kindness. It's flawed on so many levels. Think about raising kids. It may be happy for them to give them everything they want and to give them no rules and to let them you, you're free reign. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Do whatever you want. Here's my credit card. Buy whatever you want. You want to run down the street uh, standing on your head, uh, you know, uh, juggling knives. Go for it. 
pictures. Watch anything you want on TV. Just here, just HBO, Cinemax, it's all yours. You, you want anything you want to eat, go ahead. You don't want to go to bed tonight, that's fine. Bedtimes don't matter, 10 o'clock, you don't need to go to, stay up till 3 or 4, it's fine. Right? Nobody would raise their kids that way. It may seem good to them. They, yeah, I get to eat pizza all day and eat brownies and stay up all night and juggle knives and buy stuff off Amazon. That, that's great. But, but there's not one parent in the world that would say that's being kind to them. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's mean and damaging to kids to have no restrictions. And very quickly, the police would be out to the house, right? Okay, we got a report that your eight-year-old is in the front yard juggling knives while eating a brownie, while watching Cinemax. You good with that? Because we're not. Right? That would be mean to the child. So the idea that the Lord cannot be loving and kind unless he gives us our way is so obviously misguided and wrong that it's not even worth arguing about, but it does not negate the fact that he is kind. 175 times in the Bible, the Lord says, I am full of loving kindness. And that word means good and kind and faithful. And David says in Psalm 83, God's loving kindness is better than life. It's better than life. And it's proven every single day in in a multitude of ways. His love and his word and his patience and his willingness to forgive and his redemption and his cleansing and the renewed mind and the Holy Spirit and access through prayer and the body of believers to edify and fellowship and the goodness. I mean, just you just keep going on and on and on and on and on. And what really proves that God is, has loving kindness is that he didn't extend all those things while we were his friends. He extended all those things while we were still his enemies, when we were completely undeserving, and we still are, when it cost him a price to do it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And he continues to show us loving kindness and will for all eternity. And every day we stand in heaven, we don't deserve to be there. And yet he will embrace us and say, well done, you're mine. You're mine. Enter into the presence of the Lord. So when we're told, look back at the verse, to be kind to each other, and God's our example, it's very difficult for us to argue, well, that's an unfair command. That's that's unreasonable. I've got to be kind to that person that hates my guts. I've got to be kind to to somebody that's rude to me. I've got to be kind. Yeah, we do. Because it doesn't qualify. Only be kind to the people that are kind to you. That'd be a pretty short list, right? This should be so natural and so much an extension of our faith that, that, that it just, we don't even think about it. Of course that's what we're going to do. We love him because he first loved us. So we're going to be kind because he was first kind to us. But, but how many of us know that, that we not only fall short of kindness, sometimes we intentionally resist it. 
So it has to start with our words because our words give life. You can destroy somebody or you can build somebody up with your words. And and words oftentimes reveal the true spiritual condition of our heart. So what does our answer, how, how we respond, what does that tell us about our walk? Kindness is shown to the extent in which we sacrifice, in which we're selfless, which is why God combines it with the concept of love, because love is all about sacrifice. Love is not selfish. Love is not, I get what I get. I want what I want. Teenagers, when you're dating, young adults, when you're dating, and somebody's demanding stuff from you and saying, oh, I love you, now do this. Nope, that's not love, that's selfishness. Love is sacrificial. And people will know the sincerity of our kindness by the sacrifice that goes with it. Because I can do wonderful things to you and be cursing you under my breath. I'm still doing kind things. Wow, it's really nice. Paul brought over, you know, a turkey to my house. And boy, he's such a nice guy. And, I'm going, and, and, and if I'm full of resentment and going, I can't believe I had to do that to get on a Saturday and bring this over to you. And, you know, that's, that's not love. It has to be sincere. Look at the second thing he says. The Spirit says, be tender-hearted. This is a memorable word here. The meaning of the word is to have strong bowels. So church, let's have strong bowels. We need strong bowels. Because that's what it says. What does that mean? It means to have a heart that's sensitive. A heart that is easily moved with compassion for other people. It means seeing people spiritually rather than just physically and emotionally. Looking at the core of who they are, not just the external, not not the show that they put on because they're embarrassed or insecure or fearful, but really getting in the heart of it. How are you doing spiritually? As we feel that compassion for people, then we're able to express our love and our sacrifice and our care for them in a fresh way. Now, this is a challenging issue for us because at the core, every single person is selfish. At the core, we want to be first. At the core, we want to do what we want to do. So being tender-hearted, look back at the word, being tender-hearted because of our relationship with the Lord can be a very powerful expression of our faith, and it can be a very great opening to share the gospel. I once heard Pastor Simula of Brooklyn Tabernacle give an illustration. I won't do it justice, but let me tell you to you anyway. He, would, he had just preached the third sermon of the day. They, used to, they had three services on Sunday, and, and he was exhausted. And, and at the end of the service, this, this very rough-looking man came up to him, obviously homeless, and Pastor Pastor Simula was praying with people and he saw this man come up right to him and, and he said, you know, I just, I was so done and, and, and just knew that, you know, this guy wanting money, he's panhandle or whatever, and he, and he started to reach for him and, and the conversation was, I don't want money, I just need you to pray for me. Pastor Simula said that the smell off this person was unlike anything I've ever smelled before. A man who grew up in Brooklyn. He said it was a mix of bodily fluid and vomit and, and the street. And it was, just, it was just horrible. I mean, it was just where he was choking to be near this person. 
And as he started to talk to him, the Lord broke his heart and he started to pray for him. And the Spirit of God just changed his perspective and gave him just great love for this person that, that nobody, none of us would want to stand near for five seconds. And Pastor Simmel said, it was, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced in ministry. I just became engulfed with love for this person and, and a heart of compassion for this person. And he said, the Holy Spirit changed that awful smell to the most sweet-smelling thing I'd ever smelled before. That's what it means to have strong bowels, to be tender-hearted. Where people that maybe we don't want to be around, who either just just aren't 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 there for us, or 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 have been critical of us, or just are are the kind of person where you go, I'm going to have to give a lot to this. That that God says, be tenderhearted have my heart my compassion remember Jesus would see people and he wouldn't see the problem because everybody oh don't bother with this person don't bother with the children don't bother with that demoniac don't bother with that leper don't bother with this one come on Jesus got stuff to do that's what he came to do to show love and compassion so he walked right up to the leper said you're going to be healed he didn't get annoyed with the woman with the hemorrhage stopped him on his way to see Jairus' daughter. He didn't look at the demoniac like everybody else and say, I'm not getting near that. He had a heart of compassion. And he looked at the people and he saw sheep without a shepherd. Oh, God, give us this as a church to look around us and see sheep without a shepherd. Because Jesus was moved with compassion. He was tender-hearted because of his love for people. Third, let's finish. The Spirit says to forgive. But notice, not in our own power or according to our own willingness or our own sense of justice, we're to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. That's not exactly a low standard, is it? Paul Rhodes, forgive forgive as God forgave you through Christ. Now, as a believer, having experienced the forgiveness of God firsthand in the most profound way possible to the extent that it has literally changed my life for all eternity, having learned about the power and the effectiveness of God's forgiveness, it now should be natural for me to have a forgiving spirit. To be the one that is willing to forgive first because I love the other person. To, to know the greatness and the power of being forgiven. And when we're walking by the Holy Spirit, that willingness to forgive will not be hesitant and it won't be stingy. It will be sincere and passionate. We'll be ready to forgive, ready to reconcile, ready to make it right. Looking for any opportunity we can to show the love and compassion of God that we've experienced through Christ. And that's always going to be attached to the maturity of our walk so the closer we get to the Lord the more this will take place and it's not something we can't we can't take that part of verse 32 look at the last part of it forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgiving you there, there's no explaining that away there's no hiding that well that's not what what the Holy Spirit meant through Paul there's there's conditions to it I'm sorry I don't see a single condition in there in fact I see God ramping it up and saying the condition is I forgave you now what's your excuse what, what's your reason, Paul, to say, I will not forgive because I forgave you? Was that not good enough for you? 
And this will be personified as we forgive people that have hurt us and offended us. Her don't seem worthy in our minds of our forgiveness. We've all got somebody like that in our lives, right? I'm going to ask you at the end in a couple minutes, who is that person? I'm not, nope, I'm done with them. I'm, I'm not forgiving them. You know, it's always funny how the Lord <laughs> drives these points home to us in very practical ways. Let me tell you this story and I'll pray. Thursday, we were coming back from Schaumburg. We had taken Jacob down to, to have LASIK surgery and we're driving home as a family and I was really tired, but I was in a good mood. Till I got behind a lady driving a very expensive car but shall we say she wasn't taking advantage of the horsepower that God had blessed her with? She was going under the speed limit as we're driving through Arlington Heights, and I wasn't able to get around her. She kept going slowly. And if that wasn't enough, she was kind of weaving back and forth in her lane and braking at times that absolutely defied any logic whatsoever. This went on for about four or five miles. I was at the end of my rope. And we got left to turn on to the tri-state. Of course, she decided at the last minute that she needed to go on the tri-state too. And as we made the turn, and I'm just full of fury at this point. Shouldn't be, but I am. So we made the turn. I screamed up beside her and looked at her. And of course, she's on her phone. And I, I just, I'll confess to you, I was angry. I was frustrated. So I very carefully and lovingly and compassionately used my car horn to let her know that I loved her so much. And I got further down the highway and I'm still ticked off and my family is very gently trying to encourage me, you know, maybe don't get so stressed about these things and, and I'm still kind of fuming and then all of a sudden the Lord puts Ephesians 4.32 on my mind because I've been studying it all week. And I kind of said, oh, I'm not talking about that Sunday, Lord. I'm literally, I'm driving north on the tri-state line. I'm not, I, yeah, I get it. Okay, I get the lesson. Good, good, good. I'm not talking about that Sunday. Nope, you are. You're talking about that Sunday. Because Ephesians 4.32 just doesn't apply to my wife and my kids. And it doesn't just apply to you, my church family. It applies to that lady too. Now, I'll never see her again. Hopefully, I'll never drive behind her again. But as I drove north, I had to confess to the Lord that my heart had been wrong. And even though I'll never probably get an opportunity to say it personally, I should have been kinder and tenderhearted and, and even forgive her, even though I felt like she was offending me. But even though it didn't seem like it was the case as I passed her and glared at her and honked at her because she's on her phone, it hit me that, you know, maybe she's dealing with a personal crisis. Maybe she's counseling somebody that, that needs some spiritual guidance. I don't know if she's a believer or not. Maybe she's encouraging a struggling child who, who feels lonely. I don't know. I don't know her situation. Maybe she was just chatting with her hairdresser. I'll never know. 
But the point was not what she was doing. The point was what I was doing and the fact that here I've been studying Ephesians 4.32 all week. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake is forgiven. I still remember it. I learned it when I was five. Even though I've got that in my heart and I've been studying that, clearly I'm not exemplifying it. See, Jesus' ministry was effective because he understood people's hearts and he extended love and grace and mercy to them because everybody needs love and grace and mercy. So in these simple words to us, he gives us insight on how we can change the nature of any relationship and how we can show ourselves and other people the power of loving kindness and forgive us. And when you and I start to implement the principles of this verse, we will see a marked change in our relationships. Now let's be very blunt. This will not be easy. Because it requires a surrendered walk to the Lord and it requires complete sacrifice of ourselves to extend that love and mercy. But doing this will strengthen our relationships and it will break down the walls of hurt and hostility that have built up and above all things, it will honor the Lord and when we honor the Lord, he blesses it. So I said a couple minutes ago, I want you to put this into practice, and I want to put this into practice right now. I want you to pick one or two people in your mind. You can close your eyes if you need to. You don't have to. But I want you to pick one or two people in your mind that you need to go the extra mile with to bring some healing and and some forgiveness. Now, do this without any expectation of reciprocation. Do this just to honor the Lord. And trust in him to work in your heart and the heart of the other person as you faithfully obey his word.